This is Hooks and Runs, a podcast about baseball, music, and culture. Here are your hosts, Andrew, Craig, and Rex. Professor Langston Colin Wilkins is an assistant professor of folklore and African-American studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where his research interests include African-American folk life, African-American music, urban folklore, and car culture. His work has appeared in the Journal of Folklore Research, the Washington Post, and many other publications. He is the past director of the Center for Washington Cultural Traditions in the state of Washington. His new book, which we will talk about today, released in August of this year, is Welcome to Houston, Hip-Hop Heritage in Hustletown, published by the University of Illinois Press. And Langston, welcome to Hooks and Runs. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to uh, be here. I wish we were talking about another Houston Astros World Series title, though, to be honest. Uh, yeah, that was... Uh... That was disappointing, but you know, guess you can't win it every year. So, are are you a big baseball fan, Astro fan? Did you grow up? Yeah, pretty uh, big. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Big, big since the '90s, you know, in the the Killer Bees era. So, oh yeah, uh, for sure. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So let's uh, let's talk about the book and talk a little bit about you. Right out of the gate, in the acknowledgments, you credit the Ghetto Boys' 1996 album, The Resurrection, as being a major musical influence for you, and I guess cultural influence as well. And your book is very focused on place, a sense of place, social practices and rituals that are reflected in the arts and cultural heritage of the community. So let's start with that album and uh, where you grew up and how these things influenced your deep interest in music, folklore and culture. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Happy to talk about that. Um, Yeah. You know, that Ghetto Boys album, The Resurrection in 1996, was just a transformational moment for me um, before uh that album came out you know i was uh you know fairly big into uh you know alternative rock and and, you know kind of post grunge and everything that was uh big in the early 90s but um you know once that record came out i became hooked on hip-hop and i think it was just the ways in which the members of the ghetto boys were you know use their platform and use their artistry to really talk about some mysterious things going on you know really in the communities that i grew up uh grew up in and you know i was living in um i'm trying to remember where i was living in then but you know i kind of grew up in third ward and then um, also in a neighborhood called, called hiram clark both predominantly black neighborhoods and that record really addressed what was going on there and really you know sparked my deep interest in hip-hop and, you know, really, since I was 12 years old, I felt like I've been a hip hop scholar. And so, you know, this book really began, you know, back then, back during my adolescence when I fell in love with hip hop. And, you know, I really just got a chance uh, in graduate school years later to really deeply pursue it on a professional level. OK, so the Houston hip hop scene is kind of included in the national discussion, along with. New Orleans, Atlanta, other cities, and a broader Dirty South kind of um, kind of imagery, different from say the East Coast, West Coast that kind of dominates the discussion sometimes nationally. Uh, you describe though your complicated feelings about the term Dirty South. Where does the Houston specific Houston hip hop scene and culture fit into the broader regional and national rap markets? Oh yeah, yeah, happy to address that because um, yeah, I do. 
both embrace the term Dirty South as, you know, this larger regional hip hop identity, but also I think, you know, too often we don't give enough to attention to, you know, the really cultural specifics of these various hip hop locales. And so, you know, Houston is certainly um, a firm part of, uh, you know, this larger Southern hip hop culture and hip hop identity and really, you know, came of age when these other Southern hip hop landscapes, you know, rose in prominence. But, you know, I just make it a point to note that, you know, the hip Houston hip hop sound and the larger culture is so different from everything else coming out in the South and in other parts of the country. I mean, the sheer slow sound of the music and the, the kind of the lyricism and the general atmospheric sound and vibe of the music is so different than what you get out of Atlanta and out of New Orleans. And that's the point I was trying to make uh, with the book that, you know, the sound of the music, the style of the music, and even the lyrics are deeply rooted in, in Houston culture. And I just wanted to shed a light on that. So um, yeah, it's both part of the Dirty South, both reflective of the Southern hip hop movement, but also very different and very unique on its own. And that's what I was trying to convey. That's sort of the same way across other musical styles. Because if you think about Texas and the blues, uh, for example, Texas has a distinct uh, blues tradition, it seems like, and probably rock and probably anything else that's come out. Country music, for sure. Willie Nelson and the whole outlaw country thing. So it's kind of a unique aspect of Texas to have this... uh, have this uh, unique musical culture or musical tradition. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's, uh, you know, I'm trying to fit that into that legacy. I mean, yeah. Outlaw country, very different than, uh, you know, some of the more um, popular styles you get out of Nashville and, and Texas blues is not Memphis blues. Right. Right. Which is not Kansas city blues. And, you know, I just hope to, I think we need to bring that, that same kind of cultural specific, uh, you know, it's cultural specifics, to hip-hop you know i think it's time to really get down and get you know very nuanced in our coverage of hip-hop culture in the same way as we do for other genres so i'm interested uh, generally in how geography and space and distance impacts culture and markets we talked to jim ruland uh author of a book about sst records uh, i think it was last year um, about how uh, geography and space and distance impacted the development of punk rock in california in the 80s and uh, you dive into that subject uh, in some detail in this book about uh, that in Houston, examining the distinct, even within Houston, north side, south side, southwest cultures. Can you talk about how geography impacts culture in a general sense, as well as how the two are related to Houston hip hop and musical cultures? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's the central part of uh, the book. And, you know, a lot of that came from my doctoral dissertation where I was looking at you know, the, the fact that, you know, within at least um, the predominant uh, African-American neighborhoods in Houston, you have this very, very deep connection to both the physical and built landscape and environment, right? So this intense connection to place whereby um, people actually like identify with the neighborhoods that they grew up in and kind of embody the spirit of those neighborhoods. And then they reproduce, you know, that pride of place and that deep connection to the environment in the music. So there's a reason why, you know, even within Houston, um, the, the, the music is so hyper local down to the fact that you can identify the music that came from particular neighborhoods because they talk about it. Um, so it's place and space is super, super important to Houston hip hop. And also from a commercial standpoint, 
you know, Houston hip hop uh, has long been, uh, has long been rooted in these, this, these independent record labels and this independent industry. And I think that's rooted in people's connection to place as well, because there's, you know, the Houston audiences and even, you know, the Southwest is so uh, deeply committed to the sounds coming from the area and to uh, so much so that these artists can really, you know, live off of and get rich off of just selling music within the region. Um, it's such a regionally identified place, identified music. And it all goes back to uh, this intense pride of place that uh, happens within these working class black communities. Yeah, so I think it's interesting how rap music originated in the various cities and scenes as songs like Rapper's Delight and The Breaks broke into the public eye nationally. The early songs in Houston are certainly Houston-centric. I mean, one of the first songs, earliest songs mentioned in your book is McGregor Park. You know, so, I mean, it all comes right down to the neighborhoods. The artists from that time, L.A. rappers, uh, Ghetto Boys, seem to be pretty global in terms of searching for beats. Yep. What influenced the musical choices for those early groundbreaking acts in the Houston area? Was it a search for a particular sound or just what they could find and make available to rap over, freestyle over? Oh, sure, sure. I think it was the latter. I think it's that, you know, back in the early to mid 80s, you know, hip hop was brand new and hip hop was still very, very much New York centric with a little bit of uh, stuff in the West Coast, the electro stuff kind of um, kind of bubbling out of that. And so, you know, if you look at all the uh, scenes that popped up in the 80s, the mid 80s, at least, a lot of them got their start by pulling directly from mostly the sounds coming from New York and some of the sounds coming from Los Angeles. So those early Houston records, you know, lyrically rooted in, you know, the culture of Houston, but in terms of the sound, the beats and everything, firmly uh, influenced by New York and again, to a lesser extent, Los Angeles. So it's really just, you know, uh, it's really just reflected where hip hop culture, you know, in general was at the time. That's really all it was. Okay, you can't talk about Houston hip hop without talking about screw and the screwing and chopping sounds and beats. Can you explain what this means and how uh, screw developed to uh, become a uniquely Houston sound? Oh, sure. Screw music uh, simply uh, it's uh, distinct to Houston, Texas, um, and it's really a music that is slow uh, production style that is very slow dragging um and very atmospheric in nature um it's kind of a a very slow psychedelic i would say hip-hop sound and then the chopping is a dj practice where it's kind of a uh it's really kind of a percussive dj practice it's hard to really explain in words um but it's a repetitive uh kind of percussive sound that occurs in the screw music and other dj based uh projection styles um but it took root in the early 1990s, it was uh, pioneered, pioneered and innovated by DJ Screw, who grew up uh, mostly in Houston. He was actually from a small town called Smithsville, um, but he moved to Houston early on. And he uh, created the sound and he uh, helped it spread throughout the south side of Houston and then into the north side. Um, it really 
took Ribbon Houston because I think of the slow sound and, you know, Houston is super hot. So people move a bit slower. So I think there's some connection there, but also thinking about the street culture that it emerged in um, and the car culture and how those cars were meant to be driven slow. I think, you know, the, the screw music was kind of the perfect match for the car culture and together uh, they kind of helped develop this larger screw movement that came to identify or came to um, be identified with Houston. So yeah, you know, screw is both a, a musical sound and I think it's uh, Houston's larger hip hop identity. Yeah, I love that you mentioned the weather because I've always thought, <laughs> you know, that's got to be a big part of why that slower sound, other than it sounds yeah. really cool, but I mean, it's like you right. can't, you can't, you can't wear yourself out when it's 110, uh, you know, outside right. or whatever. You gotta, you gotta pace yourself. So exactly, that's that's exactly. that's awesome. So uh, let's see. Uh, let's talk about the slabs, the unique mm-hmm. Houston car culture that goes hand in hand with Houston hip hop. How did that connection get made, and um, and does it still live on? I mean, is there still a vibrant car culture in Houston today associated with Houston hip-hop? Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, slab culture, um, a, a very distinct urban car culture that was born in Houston. So it's, it's, it's unique to Houston, and it emerged around the mid-1980s um, in these Black neighborhoods in Houston. And, you know, um, slabs in general, um, they're older modeled cars, older model like big luxury sedans like Cadillacs, Lincolns, uh, Oldsmobiles, you know, even those aren't still made, but um, those big luxury cars kind of souped up with all kinds of body modifications. Um, But most notably, I think the most important uh, part of a slab that kind of distinguishes it from other car cultures are the wheels, those, kind of chariot-like uh, chrome cone-shaped wheels or rims that are either called swingers or elbows um, in their culture. And yeah, they emerged in the streets of Houston, mid-1980s, so a little bit before the screw sound. But by the late 1990s and early 19, uh, or by the late 1980s and early 1990s, the screw sound and the slab practice were kind of uh, growing in the streets alongside each other. And so a lot of uh, the slab riders were playing those um, DJ screw mixtapes in their cars. And then, you know, those same slab riders would also like get custom screwed mixes to play in their cars. So eventually like the two traditions kind of combined and kind of became tied together. And um, yeah, eventually it became two of the kind of icons of Houston hip hop culture. And I, I would say that slab culture is kind of the, kind of visual elements of Houston hip hop culture in that way. Anthony Bourdain did a piece. Did you see mm-hmm. that uh, a, a while back, obviously? And he, I uh, did. yeah. And it was a great, uh, a great little uh, piece of, uh, of TV about Houston car culture. And of course I, I was in Houston in the nineties and, um, and saw all the cars, but I never made the association with hip hop and hip hop culture until yeah. that show. And uh, and ever yeah. since it seems like you can't dis to, you can't disconnect the two. Once you make the connection, you can't disconnect them. So that's a yeah. that's a prominent part in your book, which does dive not only into the music but also the culture of Houston and the culture that surrounds uh, Houston hip hop music. So, all right, the Ghetto Boys were probably the first Houston act to achieve major mainstream success with Mind Playing Tricks in 1991. 
uh, why do you think there was never any sustained success? You kind of touched on this with uh, with the mention about uh, Houston yeah. artists doing well, just playing to Houston and Texas uh, fans. But why do you think there was never any sustained success for Houston hip hop acts in the years that followed uh, the Ghetto Boys breakthrough release? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I think there are a few reasons. One, I think the hip hop, uh, the larger uh, popular hip hop or mainstream hip hop industry has uh, for so long been rooted in New York or Los Angeles and the sounds coming out of those areas. And I think maybe recently Atlanta's kind of bubbled up and become like the third center. That is, it's been hard for uh, locales outside of those cities to uh, have a sustained presence in the hip hop mainstream. I think that's one. But two, I also think, yeah, you know, Houston artists um, really focused on making Houston uh, identified music and, and making music that really only uh, Houston fans and those kind of connected to the scene would really um, get and really receive well. They weren't really interested in making, you know, larger, um, uh, kind of global sounds that would really appeal to mainstream ideals. They didn't really have to, and they didn't really want to, you know, I think that's part of it too. Um, so I think it's a combination of those two things. I think, you know, in 2005 and maybe to 2007, there was a moment where Houston was back in the mainstream and you had artists like Paul Wall and Slim Thug who, you know, made very, you know, really amazing, unique sounding music that I think national audiences connected to, um, but it's been it's been not much, right, for in terms of mainstream reception for Houston artists since then. And I really think it's just that there hasn't been a lot of space for it and local artists didn't really need it. Okay, so let's look at some of the many great Houston artists that populate the book and start with an mm -hmm. artist that lent his name to the style of music that is synonymous with Houston rap, DJ Screw. So yeah. uh, you mentioned him a little bit, but tell us about uh, about uh, about his career once he established this style of music. Oh yeah, DJ Screw. I mean, you know, probably uh, one of the uh, handful of uh, probably one of the two or three most important figures in the Houston hip hop history, right? And you know, he again, like I mentioned, created this whole sound, the whole movement. And you know, he died in two thousand, but you know, between the late eighties uh, and and the time he died he really uh, helped give Houston its, you know, unique hip hop identity. A lot of the um, most important figures still in the Houston hip hop scene came out of DJ Screw's camp. And I'm talking about the rest of the Screw to Click, the, the crew of rappers that um, kind of grew up around him. And so, you know, DJ Screw is really synonymous with Houston hip hop. And, uh, you know, his contributions to the scene, you know, can't be, um, can't be reduced in any way. I mean, he's immensely uh, important, even for artists who don't really buy into the screw sound. I mean, they recognize him as someone who really put on for the city and really gave the city, uh, or at least its hip hop culture, some true meaning. So it's super important. Okay. Two artists that you mentioned in the book have expanded their reach beyond hip hop into the mainstream of Houston media and business. Uh, those are Big Love and Bun B. What does, uh, and there may be more, those are the two that I know mm -hmm. about for sure. And you talk about Big Love in particular in some detail. What does their career arc tell us about how outsider music operates to reach broader mainstream acceptance over time? I mean, let's yeah. face it, Snoop Dogg's a game show host now. So, I mean, that's the way it goes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I could talk. Yeah, those, like, you know, and uh, Bun B especially, right? I mean, I think uh, 
I think some people consider him the, uh, I know there's a, a, a vote or a, a big race right now, but some people consider him the unofficial mayor of Houston because <laughs> his, uh, you know, he, he went from being, you know, this super, super incredibly skilled uh, hip hop lyricist to really this true champion for uh, hip hop in Houston, but also just kind of the larger Houston culture. I mean, we see him everywhere, you That's know, promoting true. That is true. and making ads and songs yeah. to Astros. He has Trill Burgers. He had the rodeo, the rodeo day. So he's really a Houston culture ambassador. And Big Love is a guy who um, made some really deeply cultural music in the '90s, but has now. Um, kind of expanded outward and become he's a realtor he is a car customizer he's currently uh i think in china right now so he's doing <laughs> some things so he's he's just an incredible incredible guy um who used hip-hop or, or in a genuine way to expand outward and make some deeply uh uh deep cultural contributions outside of the hip-hop scene too yeah it's not that uncommon i mean we were just talking a mm -hmm. couple of couple of episodes ago about Bob Dylan making Victoria's yeah. Secrets commercials. I mean, eventually they just go mainstream. <laughs> the money's too good. And, the, and you know, you, uh, yeah, but yeah. Bun, Bun B is everywhere. And I haven't heard him referred to as the unofficial mayor. I think if he ran, he might be the mayor. <laughs> he <laughs> might. He's might. He's everywhere. He's everywhere. Absolutely. <laughs> so let's see. Another group that's mentioned throughout the book and that may not be quite as familiar is Block Boys Click. Uh, oh, tell us yeah. who they are and their contribution and what can... What has led to their longevity on the Houston scene? Yeah, so the Black Boys Click, you know, whenever you're doing uh, like, you know, deep field work or ethnographic work, I mean, you need people who will, you know, really open the doors of the culture to you and really help you figure out where to go and where the stories are. And the Black Boys Click were that for me. They are, uh, uh, I think, I'm not even sure if they're still together, but they're a crew a group of artists from all sides of the city, I mean, from the north side, south side, all of the city, who really, at least when I was doing the field work maybe 10 years ago, were really prominent in doing cultural events and they were organizers within the slab scene. And uh, the record label, the record label head, OG Scott, is a longtime Houston, uh, Houstonian who grew up in uh, the Cloverland neighborhood in the south side. He came out of the streets and um, he started doing music and now he's doing incredibly, uh, incredible cultural or community-based things through a nonprofit that he developed. So he's doing like educational resources and, and food drives, all these different things. So the Black Boys Click really, you know, represent the, uh, the spirit of hip hop in that it, you know, offers people a way out of some tough situations and also you know if you do it the right way these houston hip hoppers and hip hoppers in general really make it a point to give back to their community and that's who the black boys are and, and they were super important to my work for sure yeah that seems to go beyond just the black boys click i mean that seems to be something that's really a feature of houston hip-hop is how much all of not all of them i mean i'm sure there's some that don't but i mean it seems to be something that is fairly common for these Houston artists once they become a name to get deeply involved in community projects, community improvement yeah. and things like that. So is that just a function of being a regional, um, a regional market and a regional uh, fan base, or is there something unique to Houston that has uh, made 
uh, Houston hip hop scene so culturally, not culturally, but community aware? Yeah, no, I, you know, I think it's both. I think you see it in, in all locales where, you know, these artists who came from those areas use their uh, platforms and use their, um, you know, uh, just their uh, access to open doors and really give back to the community. But in Houston, you know, yeah, being such a deep regional scene, you know, the artists mostly live in Houston. They continue to live in Houston. They continue to, you know, actively be amongst the communities that they grew up in. And so they naturally care about these folks. So, you know, they're willing to use everything that they gain from uh, hip hop to make their communities better. You know, I think that's often lost, you know, on people. And I know there's lots of negative associations with hip hop, but, you know, when I was doing field work, I went to so many different like um, uh, political rallies and, and, and clothing drives and, and health fairs and everywhere I went, these hip hoppers were there and they were there in a, what I saw, a very genuine way. And so, you know, I just think it's a factor of um, Houston being such a deep regional scene and these artists not having to leave to have careers. So they're still there and they're still willing to, um, you know, just be of aid and, and be leaders in the community. And I think that's um, the beautiful part of hip hop that people sometimes miss. So let's talk about uh, bringing it forward to the current um, mm -hmm. state of Houston hip hop. And the music business as a whole is really fractured by the impact of streaming primarily upon uh, revenue streams. Um, obviously, yeah. it's affected record labels and the way music is distributed. There is in the book a discussion about an underground scene that is maybe mm -hmm. more diverse and more musically diverse than may have been the case 30 years ago or 20 years ago. What is the yeah. situation in Houston right now with the hip hop scene? What's happening and how are the newer artists uh, making it in a more difficult, perhaps a music environment, commercial environment? Yeah. From what I, you know, from what I understand it's hard, you know, and um, you know, streaming uh, has both, you know, helped Houston hip hop uh, spread in some ways outside of, you know, the regional um, borders. But at the same time, it just um, brought revenues down so much. You know, I, I think uh, Houston, though, thankfully, because that that pride of place is still there, you know, there's still opportunities for local artists to really earn a living um, in the regional space. But I think it's undoubtedly harder than it was uh, maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago. You know, um, but at the same time, you know, you have artists like Mega Stallion and Travis Scott, who kind of blew up uh, nationally and internationally more than artists uh, prior to them. And they're among That's the right. most popular hip hop artists in the world now. And so it's kind of a mixed bag, I think. You know, I think um, the heyday of the independent scene in Houston is just not as strong anymore. But you do have these artists who are through streaming and through building platforms on the Internet are able to go mainstream and go international much quicker than they could years ago. So it's just a mixed bag, it's a double edged sword, I would say. Yeah, something that I really appreciated about the book is that while it is an academic look at Houston's music and culture and a deep dive into the history of uh, Houston hip hop, you employed stylized fonts in the book and what I would call non-traditional spelling that is connected to the subject. Yeah. Uh, for example, your chapter five is titled <laughs> Turnin' Heads, 
with the G dropped on turning and the S in heads replaced with a Z, which is a shout out perhaps to the Block Boys Click, which does the same thing in their yeah. name. In your field as an academic, how do you navigate the language of academia with the language of the music and the streets that you write about? Oh, that's yeah, that's a great question. So uh, it, it, it takes uh, some serious negotiation, you know, and some serious... Uh, you know, just kind of working with the press and, and really, you know, like thinking about, you know, the different audiences that I'm trying to reach. And so, you know, the book itself, the book reads and looks very different than the dissertation does. The dissertation was very much built for an academic audience and it's full of, um, you know, very serious academic language. And much of that got removed for the book because I did want it to uh, reach a more popular artist and also I wanted, you know, the artists who and communities that are featured in it to actually get some value out of it and, and see themselves in it. And so, you know, it was really just, you know, working with the press to make sure that, yeah, the academic rigor is still there, but the language is much cleaner and more accessible. And also it highlights some of the, the more cultural nuances of the community. And I, and I did want to get that in there through some of the titling and through some of the stylized language that I use. So it was just um, really thinking about the multiple audiences and how to appease everybody. Yeah, I think the book, I say the book is academic and it is academic in a sense that mm -hmm. it's thoroughly researched and you do have citations and you do have uh, a lot of references to academic work in the book. It is incredibly accessible. Uh, I'm not a, um, you know, I would not call myself a top level fan of, of hip hop, although I was a, certainly a fan of, of hip hop generally in Houston hip hop when I lived there in the 90s. This is a really good book. It's very accessible. I, I, I want to ask you, though, of the, we've, we've talked about several artists. There are many, many more. Who have I failed to ask you about that I should have asked you about uh, as an artist that uh, needs to be mentioned? Yeah. Oh, let's see. Uh, you know, I always go to, uh, you know, one of my favorite artists out of Houston to this day, the mighty D. Risha, who was featured in um, that Turning Heads Underground chapter. Um, he's an artist who I think um, he's produced several albums um, that are just incredibly creative, incredibly diverse in, in subject matter, but still very much true to the Houston sound. And, um, you know, he actually has a comeback sort of show in December um, that people should go check out. But, you know, his story of just kind of growing up in the north side of Houston and having all of these um, kind of uh, national um, non-Houston influences, but really trying to stay true to the local sound because he really cares about that sound. It's just super interesting. And he just makes great music. Um, Otherwise, uh, you know, I think, uh, I mean, uh, you know, the, the screwed up click that's featured in one of those chapters are like ESG and um, who else? Big Pokey, who died recently. I mean, you know, that's just some amazing music. And anyone who's listening, you should go check out uh, their music, because really those are the guys who created this local sound and identity. And so, um, yeah, I will point I will point to those two folks. Yeah, D. Risha. And um, but also, and this is just kind of cliche, but yeah, go check out the screwed up click because, um, you know, they're just so important to the scene. OK, so um, we will do that for sure. So mm -hmm. what are you working? Well, obviously, right now you're promoting the book and and uh, but or <laughs> yeah. what are you working on uh, next? And do you have any ideas for your next book? 
Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, I'm working on a few things. Um, one, uh, I'm working on a book. It's, you know, it's very it's in its infancy, but it's looking at uh, the folklore and folk practices of 1990s uh, street culture in New York. So it's very culturally specific to, you know, I'm moving from Houston to New York and looking at you know all of the the street culture of the 80s. So we're talking um, the music and hip hop, but also the fashion. Um, the language, even the religion, and how all that continues to be relevant in African-American culture or street culture today. So that's one book. I'm also working with a partner to do um, kind of this oral history-based book of the independent and underground hip-hop music of the 90s and 2000s. And so, um, yeah, those are the two books. You know, all, both of them are very young and, and you know, are going to take a long time to develop. But those are the next steps um, for me. So what's the secret to writing a really good oral history? <laughs> oh, uh, let's see. <laughs> uh, I think it's, you know, really uh, making sure from the jump that, um, one, you know what uh, stories you're trying to tell and you just don't go in, you know, totally unfocused. Uh, I think making sure you create space for whoever you're inter interviewing to take the conversation in whatever directions they need to, also making sure you're getting your questions answered. Um, but, you know, I think beyond that is just uh, kind of knowing your role. And, and that role is to kind of structure the story, give some context for it, but kind of letting the people speak for themselves. And, you know, that's something that's super important to me. Um, and so I, I think, you know, those are the two keys. That's what I tried to do was really to see myself as someone who kind of kind of pieced together and translated these stories um, because it's the community stories, not really mine in that way. Yeah. So if any of our listeners want to follow or learn more about you through a website or social media, where should they go? Oh yeah. You can go to my Instagram at Southside Supervillain. Um, I'm on Twitter at Street Folk LCW. And you can also follow my Substack at streetfolk.substack.com. Uh, uh, so any of those three, um, and also you can go to streetfolk.org too. Um, so any of that, yeah, you can follow me and, um, you can either hit me up, ask questions or, uh, comments, whatever. I'm willing, always willing to talk about hip hop Houston or otherwise. So, um, yeah, hit me up. Okay. We will have links to those social media and Substack pages and the show notes. Our guest has been Langston Colin Wilkins. The book we've been talking about came out in August, published by University of Illinois Press. Welcome to Houston, hip-hop heritage in Hustletown. Langston, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. It was great. Rex, you know I went to Texas A&M. Oh, man, I'm sorry. <laughs> Texas A&M, have you heard, has been in the news, in the sports news and the news the last few days. Just to give our audience an idea of where this is going, he's not wearing his ring anymore. <laughs> I posted on Facebook when the rumors started flying that the Aggies had collected the money to buy out Jimbo Fisher, that if we bought out Jimbo Fisher, I was going to quit wearing my Aggie ring. And I have quit wearing my Aggie ring. Here's the here's the crazy thing. There's so many. There's so much crazy about this. Uh huh. Here's the crazy thing. A and M won this week. 
really a conference game by 41 points <laughs> and fired the coach and have paid him $77 million to go away after winning a conference game by 44, 41 points. Now, yeah, it was Mississippi State. They're down. But still, I've never heard of a coach winning on Saturday by 41 points a conference game and then getting fired on Monday. It just doesn't happen. Yeah, but then you got to put things in perspective and everything that came before that, from what I understand, wasn't all that great. Now, well, I did, no, he wasn't fired for winning that game. I just think the timing is a little yeah. The timing is <laughs> you know, weird, but yeah, it's very weird. He's had shown, he's had plenty of losses to be fired after, so to get fired after a really good performance is strange. Do you think he only gave that really good performance because he knew he was getting fired? No, Mississippi State's not very good. They fired their coach too oh, okay. this week, so <laughs> only only for a lot less money. So anyway, everyone knows the story. After the after hiring Jimbo Fisher in 2017, after the 2017 season, uh, Texas A&M has now fired him, and they owe him 76 million dollars in change. Okay, yeah. so they owe him a ton of money, and they say A&M he didn't bring any championships mm-hmm. to A&M, but he but A&M is now the champion of something that will probably never be topped. We're the champion of paying a buyout. <laughs> and a buyout that's like literally biblical in proportions. <laughs> $75 million is a lot of money to pay somebody not to work for you anymore. Yeah, yeah. I wish somebody paid pay me $75 million not to work for them. But I yeah. did see in, in the Sports Illustrated article, they were talking to them about the, the, some of the staff was confident that there were certain clauses in the contract that they could put into effect and hopefully bring this number down. I haven't read that. Yeah, I have it, to look into that. I I don't know. I've heard that they're just going to pay it. The 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 terms of the contract are he gets. Well, paid. they definitely want to do. Uh, it's probably best for both parties to do the complete buyout thing. Yeah. And then what he's being counseled to do, at least what most people are saying, is you know sell out for sixty cents, eighty cents on the dollar. Cash out, you cash mean? Cash out and get out of there because it, it affects taxes differently here in Texas. Well, that may be, and he's he's getting, um, but you know he, the way the buyout is structured. And yeah, you're right. It is a payout. It's not he's he's not writing a A and M donors are not writing a check for seventy six million dollars today. Mm-hmm. He gets nineteen million dollars by January the eleventh, and then he gets seven million dollars a year through twenty thirty one. There's another payout, I think, in March or something that he needs maybe to so, get. Yeah. maybe so. But he gets uh, he gets a total of seventy six million dollars. So it's not all at once. So yeah, if if you look at it from a present value perspective, you know, getting a, an amount of cash up front might be the better way to go. I don't know the tax side of it. But in any event, before this uh, debacle, the largest payout, the largest buyout of a college football coach was Gus Malzahn at Auburn, $21.5 million. And then from there, you have uh, Charlie Weiss at Notre Dame, I believe, $19 million. Willie Taggart at Florida State, $18 million. And then Tom Herman at the University of Texas, fifteen point four million, and that comes from uh, Texas Football Life on Twitter. And to put this in perspective, those four guys add up their salaries. Yeah. That's what we're paying. Yeah. yeah. So they say A and M's not the that Jimbo Fisher didn't bring a championship to A and M. He brought a pretty notable championship. Yeah, he brought a record. That's the for sure. champions of paying buyouts. Oh my Man, God, I, it's crazy. But here's the craziest thing about it, Rex, because I know. I know you you've gotten really into this. Oh yeah. It's so it's so absurd. When A&M hired Jimbo Fisher, 
and paid him initially a ridiculous contract. Florida State, where he was coaching, was five and six. Five and six. And Florida and Florida State is a member of the Atlantic Coast Conference, and that's a basketball conference. Yeah. Football is something they do to kill time. Football everywhere in the conference, pretty much except for Florida State, Clemson, and Virginia Tech, is what they do to kill time until basketball tips off. <laughs> and so he's five and six. He was eight and eight in the conference in his last two years there. And here's a tip for all of you people out there that are big time college football donors. If your school athletic director goes to another campus to recruit their coach away and the fans are cheering and hoping he goes, take that into account. Yeah, before you write that next check, <laughs> before you write the big really contract, hard. think about it. If the Florida State fans are hoping against hope that you hire this man away from them, that that's what blows my mind. Maybe and then maybe look in for years. Maybe look into why you think you want him. <laughs> I don't know. This was and uh, it really you know from the stuff I'm reading too. It really seems like the only reason he's been around that long is because they keep trying to figure out a way to get out of this contract. <laughs> yeah, they keep hoping to get fired for cause. I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, uh, yeah, A and M now has you know they still have to buy out the coaching staff. All of those guys have big salaries for their position. Mm-hmm. I mean, A and M doesn't 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 cut any corners when it comes to spending money on football. So you're looking at altogether uh, probably nine-figure buyout, a healthy nine-figure buyout over $100 million. You still got to hire a coach to come into this uh, train wreck and and try to salvage it. And they're going to want, of course, their assistant coaches, and they're going to get paid. So I don't know. There's... There is an assistant coach that's taking over in the interim, and I've heard noise that he wants to stay with the program. So some of the usually, usually, a new coach will keep one or two assistants for continuity purposes. Sometimes for recruiting continuity purposes. In these, in this day and age, though, when you change coaches, you can expect to see healthy activity on the transfer portal. Mm-hmm. The people that came to College Station to play for Jimbo Fisher may not be excited about playing for the next coach, or they may look around because they can do it now mm-hmm. for a better situation. They don't. There's not a penalty for doing that. And so A&M can expect to see some healthy roster turnover. Of course, yeah. they'll be on the transfer portal to bring in players that are unhappy somewhere else, whether that is a net plus or minus. We'll have to wait till next year. But, man, what – a dark day and a dark week for A&M to be paying this kind of money to a football coach to go away. Let the Aggie jokes flow. Let They've the, earned it. They've the, earned it. Let the Aggie jokes begin. One more thing. Now, the Astros have hired a coach. We'll talk, we'll talk about the Astros later in another episode in greater detail. But I thought it was interesting that the Chicago Cubs hired Craig Council away from the Milwaukee Brewers. Craig Council has been the coach in Milwaukee since 2016. Mm-hmm. He has been a turnaround guy, but Milwaukee has has pinched pennies and had, did not extend him. And the Cubs, despite some improvement this year uh, from their coach, uh, David Ross, um, went out and hired Craig Council away from Milwaukee. And um, and speaking of overwrought salaries, I mean, good Lord, they're paying him 
forty million dollars over five years. Forty million over five we're six years. Eight million. Oh, that's good. Yeah, we're, we're at Crazy Crawls. Eight. We're actually at the business side of Crazy Crawls, not the not the entertainment side. So yeah, we're, they're paying it eight million dollars a year. Yeah, I was interested to read that um, Joe Torre was the previous previously the highest paid manager at eight million dollars a year, and he he left the Yankees in two thousand seven. Right. So managerial salaries have been pretty flat. Of course, player salaries have been oh kind of kind of it. The highest paid coach last year was Terry Francona of the Cleveland Guardians at four point five million, and now Council is kind of kind of uh, kind of blown way past that. Is Council going to make that big of a difference in Chicago? Well, he was an excellent manager for Milwaukee from 2016 to 2023, eight seasons. He was in the playoff five seasons, never making it to the World Series. But he won uh, his uh, Brewers won the division three years out of the last six, and so absolutely a turnaround because the previous 20 years before Council got there, they only made the playoffs twice, only won the division once. That was in 2011. And, uh, you know, so Milwaukee's always playing from the bottom of the payroll scale. Mm-hmm. And uh, for and, and, and they haven't been in the toughest by far, by any measure, the toughest of the divisions, but still making the playoffs five out of, out of uh, these last six years. Uh, there were is, a couple of cu- a couple of clubs that were rooting for him. They were, they were trying to get him. I know the Mets were on that list. Yeah, it looked well, like, looked yeah, like for a while that's where he was. That's going. what Milwaukee gets for pinching pennies if they wanted to retain him. Now, was well, Milwaukee ready to pay eight million dollars? That's no, I don't no, think they were I ever going to do that. They, they capped out at five point six, I think. Uh, but you know, he said, you know, in, in in an interview before this that he was wanting to open up managerial salaries. So. Yeah, they they uh, they they did. Um, managerial salaries have been stagnant for the last uh, what fifteen, sixteen, seventeen years, and right. actually declining uh, from Tory's peak at eight million dollars. So David Ross is the odd man out. He was with the Cubs four seasons. They won the division in twenty twenty, the truncated twenty twenty season, but fell to seventy one wins and then seventy four wins the next two years. But this year they had a bit of a rebound in a subpar National League Central. The Cubs were 83-79 and 79 in the hunt for the playoffs to the very end. The problem in Chicago with the Cubs is this is a team in the Central, kind of an, outla- uh, kind of an outlier with the Cardinals that can spend a lot of money and does sometimes. And um, to be honest, they underperformed. Is Craig Council the answer? We'll see. We'll see. I don't know. Eight million dollars. I'd rather spend that. I'd rather spend that extra four million dollars to get a one more good relief pitcher, maybe. But, yeah, you know. Uh, but maybe Craig Council is the difference. So uh, we'll 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 see. We're getting up on the holidays next week, uh, Rex. We're going to do our favorite rock songs that are about or mention a holiday. Oh, this and we both fun. have a lot of homework to do. Oh, you know Cooper's going to be on that list. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Victor's over here laughing. Yeah. yeah, we got Victor here with us. We got an audience. We haven't had an audience since the old Shades days. I, I know, think. right? It's been a long time. <laughs> so so anyway, so Victor, how'd you enjoy the show? This was oh, a truncated show. good. <laughs> All right. Yeah, you did good. You did good. So, and uh, speaking on that Jimbo Fisher thing, this is a plug for the Discord. 
it got a little spicy on there. So you, you, you might <laughs> somebody push my buttons. Yeah, a little, bit, yeah, yeah, so. a little spicy. All right. Thanks for listening to Hooks and Runs. Thank you to our guest, Langston Colin Wilkins, and his book, Welcome to Houston, Hip Hop Heritage in Hustletown. Enjoyed that interview for sure. So listen, Rex mentioned the Discord. All of our other links are in the show notes, including our link to the bookshop.org page that gives you a chance to not only support the authors that have appeared on the podcast, but also a little support for the podcast itself. We'll be back next Thursday with another episode. See you then. This has been Hooks and Runs, a podcast about baseball, music, and culture. We invite you to subscribe to our podcast on your platform of choice and to rate and review us. Hooks and Runs will be back next Thursday. We hope to see you all then. Thank you all for listening. Thank <laughs> you.